Hi, I'm Rochelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to Season 2 of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As always, we'll start things off with a discussion of the biggest drug news stories from the last week, some quick headlines, and a few upcoming events to look forward to. Then, since it's actually the fifth Sunday this month, we're replacing our normal Drug of the Month segment with a PSA on harm reduction. Up next is a roundtable discussion with Joel Anaya and Guillermo Civei, two officers from Mexico Students for Sensible Drug Policy, to give some background on their country's current drug culture and drug policies, talk about some recent news, and explain what Mexican activists are currently working on. And of course, we'll wrap it all up with our calls to action, because while learning about drugs is a lot of fun, None of that matters if we're not using that knowledge to make the world a better place. So thanks for joining us for episode 29 of This Week in Drugs. Now it's time for our weekly news and forecast, where we're going to be going over some of the biggest stories from the last week and talking about a few exciting things coming up. So, Rochelle, do you want to start us off with our first story? Sure. So our first story today is about a new study coming out of the Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health, um, and the study was conducted in Baltimore. It shows that crime rates are actually lower around addiction treatment centers than around other commercial areas. So the study, uh, which was published in the in this month's issue of the, or last month's, I guess, in the January issue of the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs, um, offers empirical evidence disproving claims that methadone clinics and other outpatient addiction treatment clinics um, attract more crime. So researchers, what they did was compare 2011 violent crime statistics near 53 publicly funded treatment centers in Baltimore and found that areas around 53 comparable liquor store areas and corner store areas saw significantly more homicides, rapes, aggravated assaults, and robberies per business uh, than the areas around drug treatment centers. Hmm, this is really interesting. Yeah, so this um, really contradicts a lot of arguments for people not wanting uh, addiction treatment centers in their neighborhoods uh, for fear that it'll increase these types of violent crimes. Um, and this study just goes to show that those fears are invalid, essentially. Yeah. As long as they're happy to have, you know, other types of businesses like liquor stores in their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so did they go into at all any theories as to why there is this discrepancy? Is it kind of going with the idea that, you know, these people are going to these drug treatment centers and they're getting, say, methadone and people who are on methadone are less likely to commit these crimes than people who are drunk around liquor stores? Or is it more of 
some sort of external factor not to do with what they're under the influence? Didn't draw any conclusions as to the causation mm-hmm. or like why that might be. Um, you know, I think this the one of the authors of the study, Deborah Fur Holden, is actually um, someone who studies like crime rates a lot in different ty- uh, around different types of institutions and maybe doing a study around dispensaries oh, cool. soon as well. But um, previous studies around medical marijuana dispensaries, like in California, show that there are less crimes around those businesses because of increased security mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and cam- and uh, security requirements, whether it's uh, live people patrolling uh, around the buildings or um, cameras um, on the on the outside of the buildings. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if these addiction treatment centers have those um, increased security measures that might also be deterring crime around them. Yeah. I wonder if it also has something to do with the fact that, you know, this is a medical facility, like a, a treatment center. So if people see it as a positive thing in their in their neighborhood that's helping people and are maybe less likely to either commit crimes against the center itself than they would, say, you know, holding up a liquor store, which doesn't really have that same sort of ick factor of like, yeah, robbing good yeah, like you're less likely to rob, you know, a person ringing a bell for Salvation Army than someone else who has the same amount of money. And so kind of that, that sort of idea, I think that would be pretty interesting. So for our next story, I, I want to preface it by saying that neither Rochelle, or at least to the best of my knowledge, Rochelle, and definitely not I, are any sort of investment experts. And nothing in here is investment advice uh, because the story is about marijuana stocks. Uh, so this week, Viridian Capital Advisors, which is a cannabis investment firm, released its 2015 Cannabis Industry Report and Stock Index, which found that the marijuana stocks declined 32.4% in 2015, which is performing much worse than the Dow Jones, which only declined 2.2%. And so this isn't all cannabis stocks that are out there. So the way Viridian works is that they have an index of 50 stocks that they pick that they say is roughly representative of the different sectors inside of the of the cannabis industry, which has more than 250 different companies that are publicly traded in some way. Uh, so this 32% decline is bad, but it is also especially bad in contrast to 2014, when the index actually increased by 383.5%, which is a ridiculous uh, spike, which was followed partly by a lot of different news stories, especially Justin Trudeau's election. There was a big spike then. Um, but even despite all of that, it ended up declining by th- over 32%. Um, so it fell from very high, but it's still uh, not doing too well. And we'll see what it uh, ends up doing this year. So uh, like you mentioned, Sam, I'm no investment expert, and I'm probably actually the opposite <laughs> of that. Um but my understanding is that marijuana stocks can only be exchanged like as penny stocks. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah? So is that true? And what is what is a penny stock for like our less financially inclined listeners? And yeah, totally. So um, with people who've seen Wolf of Wall Street, you might remember the pink sheets, which is what he made all of his money essentially scamming people into buying. Which are so the pink sheets are are OTC over the counter. Uh, meaning that they have far fewer transparency requirements, far fewer hurdles to jump through in order to get listed, but it's also, you know, less verified. Um, it's a higher risk. Exactly. Like, you may make a lot of money if the if the penny stock jumps just a little bit, but we may also lose a lot of money if it, if it falls just a little mm-hmm. bit. 
Yeah, and so right now, because of federal prohibition, uh, you know, NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange and these other big ones are all regulated by uh, federal agencies like the SEC. And because of that, no companies that actually touch the plant are able to get listed on these sort of things, just like how they can't access normal banking services. So the only way to get listed and traded is being OTC, uh, which is inherently a lot riskier. So there are a few companies probably out there that are reputable and actually uh you know a legit business but that means that they're also flooded and surrounded by all of these other companies that are really sketchy kind of pump and dump schemes meaning that they operate mostly off of press releases and get people excited and then the owners will like sell them on sell their stocks in order to make a killing and everyone else loses out uh, so there's a lot of issues with these one nice thing though is that actually uh that's only a problem in the u.s so out in canada where medical marijuana is federally legal there are a few canadian medical marijuana companies that are actually traded on their real exchange and um because of that there's actually two out of the top three performance stocks in this index were canadian companies and they actually did uh very well for themselves woohoo go canadian yay canada so hopefully the u.s will be following their lead eventually uh and having federal legalization and then we can have some legit uh cannabis stock trading rather than this kind of really weird sketchy kind of situation that we have right now so um i don't know if you looked this up ahead of time and feel free to tell me no if you don't know the answer but like Mm -hmm. what is the average um like price or cost of a cannabis stock if there is one, yes or at least of these like more legit 50 top 50 ones yeah, so a lot of them are still very low, um, either like less than a dollar or like single digit dollars. There aren't really any big cannabis stocks out there. Uh, one of the exceptions being uh, GW Pharmaceuticals, which is a company that uh, is from the UK, but they also are now listed on some US exchanges. And, um, and they're the ones responsible for developing like Epidi- Epidiolex. Yeah, and Sativex, that's like a nasal spray. Like cannabis-based mm-hmm. uh, pharmaceutical. Yeah, so they are like a big pharmaceutical company. And also as disclosure, I own, I think, four shares of it that I bought uh, last year and are now like 50% the value of what they were before. So they were definitely victim to, yeah, this year was not good for GW Pharmaceuticals um, because they had a couple trials that didn't go well and a couple of other issues. And so, uh, yeah, they're one of the few big ones. They trade at, I think, $55 now. So it's it's... Higher than all of the other penny stocks, but still, uh, it's a rarity. All right, so cannabis cannabis stock market's really risky right now. Mm-hmm. Um, only do it if you are better than me. And <laughs> much, much better than either of us. <laughs> uh, moving on to our next story. Um, so this one is about uh, opiate drug abuse in Appalachia, leading to an unfortunate and steep rise in hepatitis B cases. So three Appalachian states, um, Kentucky, Tennessee, and West Virginia, have seen a surge in the potentially serious liver infection, hepatitis B, over the past five years, according to new research published by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, also known as the CDC. So the study found that um, acute hepatitis B cases rose 114% in those three states from 2009 to 2013. Um, even though incidences remain stable nationally. So injection drug use was indeed a factor in three quarters of the cases um, in those states from 2010 onwards. 
And according to an official at the Kentucky Office of Drug Policy Control, nine out of ten um, people who abuse pr- prescription drug uh, prescription pills or heroin in his state are injecting them intravenously. So mm. we are seeing a very close tie between the steep rise of Hep, hep B and um, injection drug use, um, likely because of the um, reuse and sharing mm-hmm. of the same needles uh, for people who, who are struggling with opiate addiction. Yeah, that is too bad. And I mean, without looking at it off of the top of my head, I do assume that Kentucky, Tennessee, and West Virginia are not the most uh, proactive in terms of things like needle exchange programs. Um, I don't believe any exist there or would... Well, actually, mm-hmm. um, the just in recent years, uh, probably as they saw, as they foresaw, you know, this becoming more of a problem, mm-hmm. um, each of those states has taken steps towards trying to reduce the harm associated oh, wow. with intravenous mm-hmm. drug use, including um, in Kentucky, the legislature just last year passed the law giving local communities the authority to institute needle exchange programs. Oh, great. And so the other two have done some other things, but not needle exchange. Right. So um, Tennessee, for example, did partner with county jails Mm -hmm. um, since prisoners were a super high risk population Mm -hmm. um, to increase hep B vaccinations amongst inmates. Mm -hmm. This is this is like super preventable if um, if you can get a vaccination before um, contracting the disease. But there's just a really low percentage of coverage amongst the average American adult Mm -hmm. for hep B. Um, And in West Virginia, they've collaborated with a. addiction centers on hepatitis prevention training and establishing a pilot hepatitis B vaccination project uh, throughout throughout their various local communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so since Kentucky just passed theirs, I assume it's either still in the process of getting up and running or is probably launched or very, very new. Uh, So hopefully they'll be seeing a, a, a drop this coming year with that implemented and the other two will follow suit, especially now that Congress is giving federal funding, so that will be a potentially big boost for those struggling states. Absolutely, and it sounds like Kentucky communities have been implementing this very quickly. Louisville and Lexington actually already have started their exchanges. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. Yeah, Yeah. and three other counties um, have been approved for their own exchanges in other parts of the state. Mm -hmm. So, so this is, you know, this is really unfortunate news. And the researchers who did the study for the CDC said that they fear this might foreshadow a larger national problem with mm-hmm. hep- hepatitis B infections, um, just as Appalachia was unfortunately at the forefront of the current um, opiate epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, however, given how quickly these three uh, states have reacted in changing their health policies, um, having seen the the public health risk of ignoring um, mm-hmm. you know needle sharing and other, those other problems uh, hopefully this won't spread nationwide because people can you know take preventative measures instead of reacting after the fact yeah definitely hopefully we can learn from uh, some of their mistakes and make sure that we're able to prevent that from happening elsewhere all right And so for our final uh, discussion story this week, it's actually uh, a little bit of an update. So as our regular listeners might remember from last week, the UK just passed a law banning all quote unquote negative psycho or sorry, novel psychoactive substances, which they call NPS, uh, which is also known in other only in other places now since they're no longer legal in the UK, but as uh, legal highs. 
Uh, so the, which are chemicals intended to mimic a commonly used drug like cannabis uh, while having slightly different chemical structure in order to uh, be different enough to not be technically illegal. Uh, so last week, Rochelle and I discussed how it was incredibly confusing and would be really difficult to enforce. And it looks like we're actually not the only ones who think so. Uh, so Ron Hogg, who is a police commissioner for Durham, which is a city in northeast England, is quoted in The Guardian saying that the law will make it hard for officers to tell if people are breaking the law. So for one thing, it's impossible to, you know, just identify a chemical just by looking at it, obviously, or, or any sort of human sense. And it would cost over 100 pounds to test a small sample, which is going to lead to a lot of added expenses for local police departments. And he also took issue with it only criminalizing the sale of the drugs and not possession, uh, but not necessarily because he thought that those people should be criminalized, but more because for the you know traditionally illegal drugs um it's still criminal for people to both possess and sell um and so this creates kind of a strange situation where there's a group of drugs that are like there's two groups of drugs that are illegal for anyone to sell um but then only some of them are illegal to possess and others aren't and they look very similar and behave very similarly and so it's going to be difficult for you know police officers to figure out whether someone is doing a criminal offense, whether they should just confiscate it, uh, and trying to figure that out. So it's uh, very difficult. It costs like 100 pounds to test each time, which is what, like 200 American dollars? Mm-hmm. Um, then for every person, you're not sure whether they are, they're criminally possessing an, a traditionally illegal substance or if they're just mm-hmm. like harmlessly, <laughs> but, you know... Um, what what is it called? I mean, like there are are is so is possessing, um, NPS's legal still. That's what's making. Conf- I think it might be more of like an infraction. So it's it's not criminal, but I think it is illegal. Um, but it, it creates that same strange situation because yeah, if you see someone with something that say the officer can't tell if it's uh marijuana or some sort of synthetic cannabinoid and uh. If it costs them $200 to figure it out, and that creates kind of a strange incentive for them to just arrest the person and assume that it's actual marijuana so that they don't have to spend that extra money rather than going and testing it to confirm we can let this person go. Hopefully they won't do that, but it is sort of a strange incentive structure if it's costing them to figure out if they should let people go. Right, yeah, I think I saw in one of these articles about it that um, they their policy was just, just to assume that it was a controlled substance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is really too bad here because they supposedly weren't criminalizing possession with this law, but in effect, it looks like they might be. Well, so let's continue keeping our eye on UK and hope they clear this up mm-hmm. pretty soon. It sounds like they're having troubles with this new law already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, Moving on to our quick hits portion of the segment already. Um, And for our first little hit, uh, we're looking at another country in the British Commonwealth or former British Commonwealth, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, where they are getting things a little bit more right. So in Australia, beginning this Monday, February 1st, naloxone is going to become available over the counter nationwide. Um, And allegedly, it's because they want to save more lives. So... And so yay Australia and boo Maine, because the governor of Maine, for our next quick hit, uh, his Paul LePage, who we discussed a few weeks ago for his racist statements blaming the state's overdose crisis on 
Guys from New York with names like D Money, Smoothie, and Shifty who, quote, sell drugs in Maine and then impregnate a young white girl before they leave. Uh, so he's at it again. So this time, while a guest on a radio show, he said that he not only wanted to bring back the death penalty for specifically for uh, uh, drug criminals, but wanted to have public executions with a guillotine where people could make bets on which basket the head falls into. So I don't want to spend a whole discussion on how ridiculous this is, but because it was so terrible, we wanted to make sure our listeners really understood how awful Governor LePage is. Um, and then moving on to our next story, this is a little bit of disappointing news, too, from someone that uh, marijuana policy advocates was hoping would be somewhat of an ally during his tenure. Of course, I'm talking about President Obama, who has, again, recently declined to take action um, at all on marijuana policy reform in 2016. Um which is his last year in office. So it's his last chance. You blew it, Barry. Mm. <laughs> so last week at the House Democratic Retreat in Baltimore, he told House representatives that marijuana reform was not on his list of priorities for 2016. His press secretary then confirmed again on Friday that any progress on marijuana reform would have to come through Congress first. Um, this is a position he's taken in the past, having told uh, Representative Cohen from Tennessee, I believe, um, that you know if something got to his desk he probably would sign it but um that indicates you know that he's taking a very passive stance and is not being proactive about uh marijuana reform on a national level um this is particularly frustrating because the president does have the power to reschedule or deschedule marijuana through executive action um, in the controlled substances act if he wanted to um and also because as he knows quite well congress is a hot mess right now <laughs> mm-hmm and so for our next quick hit, the Campaign for Medical Marijuana in Florida has qualified for the ballot. So the same group, United for Care, has also gotten medical marijuana on the 2014 ballot, and they even got 57.6% of voters to approve it. But unfortunately, that was short of the 60% that was required for a change to the state's constitution. So now that it's on the ballot for 2016, hopefully they'll do better with two more years experience under their belt, two more years of people seeing that the sky doesn't fall with medical marijuana, and with a presidential election that'll have a lot higher of youth turnout. So if you're in Florida, please volunteer and donate to the campaign. And then finally, I do have one more quick hit since we've talked about it in past news discussions and forecasts. And this is that Kush Gods uh, from DC did have their hearing on Thursday. And the owner, Nicholas Cunningham, has been offered a plea deal uh, where if he pleads guilty to two of the four misdemeanor distribution charges and agrees to cease and desist all distribution of marijuana, including edibles, and cease participation with the Kush God's business, the government will waive enhancements, uh, but it would not necessarily oppose probation. So he's yet to make a decision about whether to accept it, so we'll keep you updated here. For those who don't know, um, sentencing enhancements are like factors that the prosecution might consider um, to increase a sentence or to make it longer by a year, two years, or whatever. And this aggravated behavior can include, you know, if there was a weapon during any of the distributions that they saw, um, it could be from, you know, a past... Uh, convictions could be an aggravating factor if he's like a repeat a quote-unquote repeat criminal um, or even things like if he was parked illegally in the street while he was distributing cannabis um, so those are the kinds of enhancements that the government is saying they would waive however they're still um, you know convicting him out of for two out of the four crimes um, of distribution so for someone to take a deal like that it would basically be admitting that they know they would they would get convicted 
uh, at, at trial of all four. <laughs> and this is the this is the only way to get a better deal than that. Mm -hmm. um, so moving on now to our forecast. Um, uh, the first um, upcoming event is a meetup by Hi New York or Hi NY. Um, and for those who have never heard of that group before, Hi NY is New York's number one meetup for cannabis activists, entrepreneurs, and enthusiasts. Their events are designed to inspire and educate leaders to take actions towards ending cannabis prohibition and creating a more healthy society. Their meetups are normally about 75 to 100 people, and they occur every couple months in the New York City area. Their next event will be on Wednesday, February 24th, and it's called The Next Generation of Canvas Leaders. Um, it's going to be at the Impact Hub in New York City, and we'll be featuring our lovely executive director of SSDP, Betty Aldworth, as a keynote speaker. Awesome. And so also for our New York City listeners, we got another event for you. And this one is that the Open Society Foundations is hosting an event on drug crop production, poverty and development. And this is coming up on February 9th, which is next Tuesday. And so for those of you who don't know, OSF is this really huge nonprofit created by George Soros, who's a billionaire that donates a lot of his money towards drug policy reform and other really good causes. And so they've done a lot of great work on drugs and criminal justice and health policy, among many other issues. And so this event's going to be featuring an international panel of researchers and growers that are from Colombia, Morocco, Peru, and the United States, and are going to discuss the role of drug crop production, poverty, and development, as well as feature some photography and documentary films about coca farmers. So it's totally free, and we're going to put the registration link up on our website. So lots of exciting events for our New York City listeners this um, upcoming month. That's mm. been all for our weekly news and forecast. As always, we're keeping an eye out for the latest news on drugs and drug policy. But as you guys know, there's so much happening all the time that we might miss a story here or there. So if you see or hear of anything uh, interesting that you'd like us to cover, give us a shout out on Facebook, Twitter, or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. to the nightlife community from your friends at This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy. Results from Dan Safe's drug checking program through 2011 to 2013 show that about half of all pills and powders sold as Molly contain no MDMA at all. Take all the steps you can to check your drugs. Know yourself, know your source, and know your substance. Stay sensible and party on. And now it's time for our roundtable discussion, where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we'll be doing a format similar to our state focus on Rhode Island in episode 14, where we'll be taking a deeper dive to look at a, at a specific jurisdiction to understand the current um, 
drug policy environment and what reform activists are pushing for there. But today we'll be doing it on a broader scale with our first country focus on Mexico. We have with us today um, advocates from, Mex from the Mexican drug policy and reform movement, Joel Anaya, the director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy Mexico, and Guillermo Hamlin, an officer with SSDP Mexico as well. Thank you both for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Rochelle. Thank you, thank you very much. So to start off a little bit, um, can you guys give us some background about yourselves? Like, where do you live, um, whether you're current students, and how long you've been involved with drug policy in Mexico? Uh. Guillermo first. <laughs> okay, Guillermo. Hi, uh, I'm Guillermo Sibeli, as you said, and I'm a historian from the, the university, the National University of Mexico. Uh, I actually live in Mexico City, but I'm from Oaxaca, a southern state of the country. Uh, I. I'm finishing right now my, my career degree. I'm trying to get my trying to get my degree and focusing on, on the activism on this reform fight. Uh, I've been really in the drug policy reform for almost two years now. I'm I'm in, in kind of sense. Are you primarily are you primarily involved in drug policy as a student, or do you work on it as part of your career as well? No, primarily as a student. Okay. Most of my of my work has been around investigation and and discussion in the academic field. In academics, okay. Yeah. And well, I, I've been working with SSDP Mexico from. Uh, from the start of last year, from around around April, from April last year, April 2015, uh -huh. and and I'm trying to I'm trying to move on, <laughs> trying to work from from here and to make a difference in the drug policy in Mexico, from starting with the academic point of view, but but working closely with the activism and change in policy. And Joe? Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, yeah, like uh, they introduced me. My name is Hector Joel Anaya. I live uh, now in Washington, D.C., but I'm from Mexico City. I've been involved in drug policy since five years ago. I were a research student from an NGO in Mexico called Cupid. Colectivo por una política integral hacia las drogas, and also I get involved in a uh, web page called drogasmexico.org, and also in a um, very cool project called Cannabis Library Project that we um, give information to the cannabis users in Mexico. Um, I got involved with uh, activism like a grassroots activism and last year I get um, I'm being the manager director of the SSDP chapter for Mexico City because I know all the kids there and they do an awesome job so 
I just want to have a new leaderships in the Mexico City reform drug policy. And now we have a lot of chances to have awareness about these changes in the politics. Awesome. Thank you both for uh, going over your backgrounds there. And for a lot of our listeners, I'd say the vast majority of our listeners are uh, from the United States. And so probably know a little bit about Mexico and about the drug policies there, but don't really have a really solid understanding of uh, what the current climate is. So would you be able to just give a little bit of a lay of the land of the politics and culture of Mexico uh, as far as drug policy goes? Like, who is the the president? What's his or her stance? What's the what's the public think about uh, various types of reforms? Is there support for things like marijuana legalization, or is that kind of an unpopular thing still? And uh, and that kind of uh, overview. Okay, uh, first of all, I think that the drugs are very important in Mexican culture. Basically, since the ancient. Uh, cultures, we have a very good relationship with the drugs, like the peyote and like um, the psychedelics and the entheogenous. So Mexico, it's like a very big consum- uh, consumer of drugs. Also, Mexico is the biggest uh, place where uh, mushrooms we have. So yeah, basically in the culture, it's a uh, very um, a very important thing, you know, like the beer, the drink, the tobacco. We have a very big uh, uses in the, in drug. So now the with the prohibition that came like 100 years ago, uh, we have a, a lot of problems about the um, social representations about the drug users and the drug abusers. Basically, with the drunk people and basically also with the cannabis users, like, you know, this thing about the marijuana, the name came from Mexico, you know, like marijuana. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have a very bad idea about the cannabis users. We have a very bad idea about the cocaine users in Mexico. It's not quite a political good way to see the drug users, you know, also. Um, uh, the alcohol is very popular, but at the same time, it's like a, a very punishable thing. You know, we have in Mexico City like uh, breathalyzers and a lot of punishment for people who drink and drive because it's mm-hmm. very risky. But uh, we don't uh, have like good approaches of these politics. We always like punish and punish and punish. So. Now, um, well, that's for the cultural thing, you know? So I think Mexico uh, uses a lot of drugs and it's involved in the culture. You know, we have uh, alcohol in all the parties and all the stuff, you know? We are like very religious, like we're very Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The wine is very important in, mm-hmm. the, in the culture and in the religion. But at the same time, um, we don't like uh, the drunk people, no? And we treat it very bad. Um, and now, for the politics, maybe Guillermo can tell something about our former president. I just want to say that uh, he have a very um, big issue now, that it's the ongas, that the last uh, former president, uh, Felipe Calderon, uh, led to this administration. 
And yeah, I just want to hear like Guillermo what it's uh, going to tell you. Yeah, well, uh, right now uh, Enrique Peña Nieto, our, our actual president, is in some way continuing the war on drugs instigated with Felipe Calderón, but with another discourse. Uh, legally, we have the same uh, the, the same policies as with Felipe Calderón uh, three years ago. There's a law called uh, Law of that establishes a certain amount of drugs that can be uh, that can be uh, moved, that can be held with you, because the consumption is in a crime. The crime is to produce, to move, to give, to sell, to anything else. Uh, this law started with mm -hmm. Enrique Nieto and the and the law of narcomenudeo that could be translated as um, as small portion marketing, <laughs> dealering, more accurately, mm -hmm. dealering. Uh, this law contemplates uh, well exactly that dealers. It works uh, with this certain amount of drug, and beyond this certain amount, you are considered a dealer, and you are considered uh, that you're having a, a health-related crime. And the well, the minimum penalty is like for two years, so it's not so simple, because like like you guys in the United States, most of the apprehensions are for consumers that have just a little amount of drug and mm -hmm. differently from from United States we don't have much people uh, like arrested here we live a, an environment of corruption and extortion where well it's simpler to pay the police officer to let you go than to go to prison even mm -hmm. if even if even if there's no penalty for smoking weed for example there's no penalty you just have to go and be be called by a by a judge like no but 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 and you have to stop doing this and that's all that's all the penalty mm -hmm. but since our our system is a little bit more complicated than that well, there are more cases of extortion than of apprehension and of arrests. Uh, this, uh, in the discourse, it's pretty much different because now we are not constantly bombard, uh, bumped by information of, of the dead people and the, and the assaults of the, of the army and the battles and the current war we had uh, with Felipe Calderón, but it's still happening. The, the truth is, it's still happening. Uh, the president, the current president said that he would take away several troops and several points of standpoints of the army, of the military, and that hasn't changed. But uh, lots of things have changed in 
at least the violence perception. There's no longer like shootings on the streets at night. There's no longer like uh, extreme kidnappings and you don't have each week people dead on the streets and, and hanged on 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 the stairs of, mm-hmm. uh, of free. And how long has that policy change been for? Well, when did the narco menudo started? At the, I yeah. don't remember if it's starting Felipe Calderon, Felipe Calderon presidency. Oh uh, yeah, the um, small scale drug dealing law uh, was an initiative of uh, Felipe Calderon in 2007 uh, the law gets in into the um, court in 2009 and it get uh, started uh, in the implementation in 2012 um, basically uh, in international way of, of, of political science they call like decriminalization no you know so we have a lot of uh, news about in mexico it's legal to have drugs but as guillermo was telling it's not quite so simple because basically with the amounts that are very small you know like in in the market you can in, in mexico we have a very different way of the market moves basically we don't have uh, like um small grams we buy like ounces and like uh, 60 50 pesos amounts of of with bags how much how much is 60 50 pesos in american more or less like uh five dollars six dollars five or six dollars uh bags of of marijuana like how big bags of how big uh, maybe like uh, eight grams, maybe ten grams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about ten grams. Okay. And this says three dollars and twenty-five cents is sixty pesos for ten grams, more or less. Right now. And, mm-hmm. and and also we have like the the grams of cocaine that uh, the legal amount is a half a gram, and you know in the market you can't buy a half a gram. You buy an entire gram. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we have these kind of mm-hmm. problems also that um, um, only get more corruption because uh, that thing that Guillermo was telling is in Mexico, we don't have investigation. Basically, all the detentions are like in, in Spanish is flagrancia. It's like flagrancy that uh, in the spot. When, uh, in spot. Yeah, basically, when the cops caught you, like, uh, getting out of um, a black point that you know that they were selling drugs. So this uh, small-scale drug dealing law in uh, speech and in in the words, like, legalize uh, some kind of consumption, because in Mexico, the consumption isn't a crime, basically. But all the things that it are that are around the consumption are have have a penalty. So uh, if you go to buy an ounce of cannabis, maybe you will be caught and be treated like a criminal. So it's very hard that thing, 
And you know, uh, we have a very big problem with the humans, uh, with human rights in Mexico. Basically, um, on the thing, the other thing that Guillermo was telling, it's in in the speech, um, the crimes were decreased, uh, and that's also true because Mexico became a very violent country uh, in in the middle of the Calderon administration. In the year 2011, we have the most big um, rank of homicides, like 24 per 100. And it get down, um, it getting like in decreases like 2012, 13, 14. But now we're, we're um, starting to have a new uh, getting up, a getting high of the homicides. And also it's because the impunity, you know, because in Mexico, we don't have like investigation. We don't have cases. We don't get uh, the real criminals to the to the jail. So uh, awareness of uh, better drug policy in Mexico will help the politics. We are telling that to them. That if we change the policies, we change the way of we approach the war on drugs. Because in Mexico, uh, in uh, in a lot of places, I hear that uh, the drug problem uh, need to be like only a health approach. But in Mexico City, we have a very big problem with the smugglers, and definitely they the only way to fight with them is with uh, guns and with army, but with intelligence, you know? So um, the new approach uh, of the drug policy, it uh, necessarily going to be with the army. It's necessary. We need the army because in some places like in Chihuahua or in Monterrey or in Guadalajara, the, mm -hmm. the smugglers are uh, very powerful. You know, like just mm -hmm. uh, yeah, because with the difference with all of our American listeners, we're used to being in a consumer country uh, where very little of the drug trade is really just for end users. And you're living through the experience of being in a transit country where these are really, really powerful groups. And so something that that I'm sure we, we covered this for uh, one of our stories a few weeks ago. Uh, but that's been in the news a lot is how at the beginning of January, uh, El Chapo was recaptured. Um, so this is, you know, being hailed as a big victory because it's very, very symbolic. But I was curious to get both of your thoughts on uh, what exactly that means for the war on drugs, if that really will have zero effect, if this is going to lead to those organizations fracturing into multiple groups fighting, if you've seen anything like that yet. Yeah, uh, I want to say uh, small things and then Guillermo. Uh, basically, I think it's a very big uh, win to the government, to the government, uh, because the uh, actual for uh, president Enrique Peña Nieto is yeah, having a very big issues right. in the international way they saw Mexico. Uh, basically mm. about the corruption and basically because we have a very big problems with economy and we have reforms in the energetics that are aren't going well so the the capture of el chapo gets like um, a good way to see the new the new administration but we saw that um nothing will change the biggest 
smuggler um, and traditional also because the smugglers in Mex in Mexico have now like 50 years uh, having uh, like a lot of relationships with the government, a lot of relationships mm -hmm. in their communities. So they are like role models. I think with El Chapo, the, pe the um, people who lose is the young kids, basically, because um, this whole story about like the uh, telenovela thing and about like um, uh, a movie thing and all these kind of stories. Like everything they see in pop culture, like all the media that surrounds them. Yeah, you know, and in a lot of places that are a lot of very poor people, a mm. very young people, that they don't have opportunities, that they don't have a development uh, way to approach mm. their lives. They, they, this is a role model. Right, it's glorifying the cartels. Yeah, exactly. So all this story um, only affects the junk people, I think, because they wanted to be like El Chapo, you know? He had the pretty girl, he had a good, a good uh, cars, he had a lot of drugs. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult. I think also uh, El Chapo, it's um, from an organization in Mexico, called El Cartel de Sinaloa. It's mm -hmm. the most important uh, smuggler uh, a cartel in Latin America now, and also in the United States. And they do a lot of um, a lot of money. They um, laundry a lot of money in international banks, and that money it uh, it gets off. Uh, the money of the cartels is still in the international banks, is still in the hotel places, is still in like legal ways of market. And if you didn't cut the economy of the cartels, we don't have like improvements. So I want to hear uh, Guillermo and I have an, an, another things about El Chapo, but I want to hear Guillermo. Yeah, well, you, you just got to a really important point, uh, the, the media. Uh, at the end of the day, El Chapo is a mediatic phenomenon. El Chapo, it's the face, is the, <clears throat> is the myth, the legend. Is this glorification of the narco that, that starts with a really, really deep social uh, social roots he's from the people he didn't have studies he uh, he speaks english like i mean champagne uh, he he rides a horse he is from the country he he's most of these expectations the young people have of what life should be in this uh, this really vulnerable environment, and the media is selling this. Not not only the not only the official media, like I mean, Enrique Peña Nieto was the first one 
to inform us about that mission accomplished was his saying. And this mission accomplished is being used uh, in different ways, in satire and, and really serious. But there also in the market there are t-shirts, there are caps, there are, there are mugs, there are um, several merchandise of El Chapo because he's a mediatic figure and he's famous and he's powerful and oh my god they have captured him and he had this enormous nexus with the with the media stars not with it not with the government nobody has talked anything about his relationships with with government people but with champagne oh my god everybody's talking about champagne and well that's that's the fame you know that's the media but but we can't so he's not he's not only a cartel gang leader or and a narco and a media um you know a personality but he's he's a celebrity too he's like he's a celebrity there's there's merchandise of him the way that there would be for like a yeah and so would you say then, in your opinion, because I feel like a lot of the time what you hear are up in the United States from reformers is just, oh, this is not really that big of a deal at all because it's just one more, uh, you know, drug drug lord and there's just going to be someone else replacing him. And so and at really, this point, no one's it, even at this mm-hmm. point, no one's even replacing him. He's just getting out every time. Right. <laughs> but do you think uh, in, in your view, because he is such such a cultural presence does this actually have an is does this actually have a pretty huge effect that that maybe americans are discounting whether that's uh discouraging people from or make, making or the drug trade less him of, on or are people hoping yeah. that he gets out yeah that's exactly the point mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In, in one way we can't be naive on this the the drug problem the drug cartels the dr- the war on drugs the narcotraffic, it's a much bigger deal than the chapel. And mm-hmm. of course, uh, the cartel of Sinaloa, it's not going to stop working. Of course, there's going to be a new head. And this is just one of the hydras. Because uh, drug trafficking is a monster, not, not, uh, it's not only one monster, it's many monsters. Each cartel is a, is a hydra. Each cartel has different heads, and each cartel is fighting for its for its glorification and for its power. And well, Chapo Cayo, Chapo Chapo is down, but he was one of many figures. One of many figures that are trafficking drugs, that are trafficking guns, that are trafficking money, and that's that's not gonna stop. That's not going to stop with Chapo or without him. Uh, and that's a big problem because this glorification comes with this great achievement of the government of cutting him and getting him. And uh, let's not say uh, that he's going to get loose again or, or not. I mean, it could happen. Uh, I won't tell you it won't. It's not a possibility. But that's not really the point, because, I mean, he's old, 
as we were saying just a few minutes ago, this is a young people problem. The the people that are joining the cartels, young people. Right. And it and it, it even leaves a larger vacuum of power when someone as powerful as El Chapo is taken out of the game. And that inevitably leads to more violence as the next people in line fight for power and to control you know, over over control of the car- existing cartel or to splinter off. Like a couple episodes ago, we showed a graph from a Mexican publication that I think was a partnership with Animal Politico um, that showed how many of the existing cartels now all came from from splintering off with l- larger cartels previously um, in the past. And so we we know that this this is not only an, an ineffective strategy at ending the drug war or, or drug trade in Mexico, but it's causing more violence every time we capture someone like this. It may seem so, yeah, but that's the point. That's one of the possibilities. But so far, it hasn't happened, and that's a really a really strange view. But again. We can't be naive. These kind of enterprises that are transnational, that are as big as things like Microsoft, can't be can't be uh, ruled by people like El Chapo. I mean, with no studies, with no preparation, with uh, just knowledge of violence and death. That's that's not exactly how it works. It's much more complicated and maybe, maybe, that's the other possibility, there won't be much violence, but there's a, a chain of command pretty well established because the, well, because the market won't stop, because they have to keep working and because they will keep working. And that's, that's the real issue here, that the, the drug market, the war on drugs isn't stopping with the capture of El Chapo. It's just one more step. I mean, that that doesn't mean that this doesn't improve anything. If one head falls, okay. maybe lots of people are involved in this. So this is a positive step. All right, that's that's illuminating because I think a lot of people have become cynical about the ca- these types of captures. Yeah, because it's like, it, it may be the easiest way, but it's a step. It's a step, and it has to be acknowledged because, well, we are waiting for what government is going to gonna make with this, with this capture. Is it going to, is it going to judge it for anything else? Is it going to take any more information? Is it going to capture more people? Is is it gonna? Is it gonna really mean the end of the cartel de Sinaloa, the capture of the Chapo? That's what we don't know, and that's what we have to wait, because. This is, the, yeah, this has been a really fascinating discussion about the overall dynamics of the drug war in Mexico. Um, we really do want to touch on a couple of more specific policy points um, or, or issues that have been coming up in uh, your country recently, um, specifically. Um, 
if you want to talk uh, just briefly about this, um, the Supreme Court in Mexico has recent re- recently ruled that personal possession of marijuana um, is an individual right. And my understanding is that they've only ruled this for the specific people involved in the case and not for all of Mexico or Mexico citizens or Mexico residents. Um, Can you guys talk a little bit about why (laughs) that process? Just briefly, though, briefly, though, because we are coming up on um, the end of our show of our time. Okay, uh, it's very good news. Uh, Basically, um, this thing it's the legalization of the first cannabis club in Mexico. Um, basically, uh, we have like a very good legal way to approach a reform drug policy. Um, a, a very important NGO in Mexico called Mexico Unido contra la Delincuencia or mm-hmm. Mexico Mexico Against the Crime uh, mm-hmm. with um, the support of transform drug policy do a very good uh, lawyer work uh, in the supreme court that basically gives to four people in mexico to have the right of the self-grow um self-grow to home grow yeah to home grow okay yes so uh, uh it's a very complicated case that gets involved like uh, more or less three years of legal of legal things and a lot of lawyers and okay basically the Supreme Court in Mexico uses uh, a specific a specific uh, thing that called in Mexico amparo it's like a permission uh, we have an amparo law um, mm-hmm. and this permission gives like uh, and a specific uh, permission to a specific people or a specific individuals to have uh, something different that a lawyer uh, that a judge uh, gave uh, like uh, a no. So uh, the Supreme and Court isn't isn't this ha- oh um one the first patient get got access to medical marijuana too was through the same mechanism. It's the same mechanism, an amparo, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, a permission, and a special permission. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, this is a huge thing in the human rights because in Mexico City, we have a very liberal kind of view with the laws. Uh, you know, in Mexico City, we have uh, the legal abortion that uh, helps to the women that they don't to the woman that they mm-hmm. don't want to have uh, babies and they mm-hmm. can interrupt the um, pregnancy mm-hmm. without being in jail. And it's mm-hmm. a very huge issue. Also, Mexico City has uh, this kind of approach called Libre Desarrollo de la Personalidad. It's like free personality development. It's mm-hmm. a, a specific thing in the laws that uh, says that you can do with your body and you can do with your mind and you can do with your rights whatever you ever want. So this is huge for the human rights. It's uh, very important that Mexico be a leader in the reform drug policy in Latin America coming the next ongas in April in New York Mm -hmm. because a lot of 
of countries like Costa Rica, Honduras, Bolivia are looking to Mexico. Uh, so I think this thing is huge and maybe the president uh, need to approach this uh, thing to show the world that Mexico we only we only didn't have or we only have like bad tragedies and we have El Chapo. No, in Mexico we are having good laws, we are reforming our country, we are having positive ways to saw the cannabis users uh, a different way because we don't gonna have like a very big free market. We're gonna have mm -hmm. a self-grow, a homegrown. Mm -hmm. So it's very uh, important to the people in the states that know that in Mexico we don't have an open free market of cannabis. We are uh, being like baby steps to have a good regulation, mm -hmm. and that's and that's very yeah. important. And that is that's just a, a really great end note, actually, just to, to be able to hear about all the fantastic work that is going on down there, because I feel like a lot of Americans perspectives of Mexico and especially when it comes to the drug war is still kind of lagging behind by a few years and they don't realize how much exciting stuff is going on in Mexico as well as the United States. And um, so unfortunately, we are we are up on our time, uh, but we do always want to end all of our interviews with a call to action. Uh, just because we really think that educating people is really great, but it, it's not that use, uh, useful in the long run if you're not actually using it to uh, improve your communities and change laws and, and make positive improvements. So if you could each have our listeners do something right now, uh, what would you each ask them to do? Maybe uh, starting with Guillermo? I may be kind of a hippie, but I think the change starts in us and in our communities and our circles. And I think... If people want to change some things in the small but significant way, they can start just getting informed and talking about it, getting away from the from the stigma, from the taboo, and really little see that some things aren't as bad as they seem. Uh, be be critical and talk about it. Talk with your friends. Talk with your family. You can do it whenever you want. And it's pretty easy, it's pretty simple, and it's pretty hippie. I love it. That's beautiful. <laughs> I love your hippie answer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and in this way, I will um, invite to all the American people and all the listeners of this Week in Drugs to come to Mexico, to Tepoztlan, in March, we're going to have the Iboga conference. Uh, it's an international, a very a big issue that um, makes a sense for a new approach of the psychedelics, of new approach of uh, positive ways to use uh, the psychoactive substances. Did you say a big Ibogaine conference? Yeah, the international Ibogaine conference. Yeah. We... And for our, our for our regular listeners, we just talked about that last week on last week's episode with Randy Hankin. Um, that's a fun connection. So in March in Mexico, it's gonna be in March yeah. in Mexico. SSDP and the Mexican chapter FSD are like sponsors. So we invite you to come. In it's a very beautiful 
town that have like a pyramid and I have a very good heel and yeah, just we want to talk about uh, psychedelics. Spring break in Mexico, everyone. Thank you so much. We'll add more information that Joel will send us about this event to our webpage. And join SSGP Mexico. And and yeah, of course, follow us on Facebook. We have information there. Uh, Of course, the the Global Evolving Conference has its Facebook page too. But yeah, we'll send you all, all the information. Perfect. Thank you both so much for coming on. This has been Hector Joel Anaya and Guillermo Sabelli. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you. Well, <laughs> thanks for listening to episode 29 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and our engagement director is Sarah Merrigan. We'd also like to thank Joel and Guillermo once again for speaking with us about Mexico's drug policies and drug culture. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or you can also email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more info about the show, links to our guests and news stories, and so much more. So please remember to stay sensible, and we'll see you next week. Our outro song this week is Hard to Believe by All Over the Place, off their recently released album, All Over the Place. Congrats to them for a successful album launch, and we hope you enjoy. Always in scraps of small paper, I'm taking the time that I need to write down the things I'm unsure of and scribblings. It's not quite how this all turns out and how people react, you can see in hopes the I'm searching for my
It's hard to believe that you won't get tired of me. It's hard to believe that you won't get tired of me.